Hey everyone out there in podcast land, welcome back. This episode of the podcast sponsored by our amazing patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. This episode also sponsored by Bobo Links from Blue Nest Beef. Bobo Links are my new favorite meat snack. Simple and clean ingredients, gluten-free, no grains, hormones, or antibiotics or dyes. Naturally preserved by fermentation, no nitrates, corn syrup, or liquid smoke. Bobo Links are tangy and delicious, individually wrapped for maximum freshness. I keep one in my pocket for a healthy midday snack while I'm on the ranch. Try Bobo Links today. Check the show notes for a link and use the code BOBOREBOOT for $10 off your first package. This week on the podcast, my friend, fellow podcaster, and all-around wizard with money from Bismarck, North Dakota, Mary Jo Herman joins me on Zoom. Mary Jo is an advocate for being your own banker, and we talk about a very specific kind of life insurance that can be used to transfer wealth across generations. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. So I'm sure I'll have a creative intro to put in front of this later. Welcome to Ranching Reboot, Mary Jo Ehrman. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you. I'm excited, Brian. I'm excited too. And you you always have a lot of energy when you talk. You're always you're always excited. It's German passion. Okay. <laughs> Some people like to call it anger. I'm 100% German. So I have rephrased that. It is not, I'm not an angry German. It is German passion. I, I might have to use that. I actually might have to use that. That's, it's, it's not, I'm, it's just, I'm not angry. That's just my German passionate side coming out. Right. It is yeah. a real thing. I, I, <laughs> like, dig it. I don't, people always think I'm yelling at them. Like I'm not yelling. I'm just very passionate about what I'm talking about. And my voice gets louder, but you know, people and, that and you're have trying to feelings, get a point across, right? And people that have feelings, those feelings get hurt. <laughs> but I don't have feelings because I'm German, <laughs> so we get loud and we act like we're yelling about stuff, and then we're fine. You know, I, I'm just thinking that I I actually have a really good friend from high school that. Um, that took a job and moved to Germany for work. And he's, he's, he's from a, you know, a strong German background and it, he speaks German. And uh, we went skiing together several times, oh, 10, 12 years ago. And he hadn't been there for, I don't know, three, four years at the time, but it, it was always funny. He was, you know, telling me the words for something. It's like, 
you know, everything sounds so, so harsh and like harsh and consonants. And it, it almost sounds like Klingon sometimes. And like, they'll have this long, long word for something really simple, like butterfly. And the words that are all in that thing are like translate exactly to butterfly, but it takes six words to get there. Yeah. Yeah. They do. It's just, it, they don't, my husband is very nice. He's a very sweet person. <laughs> and he will say something, ex he will say the same thing I'm saying, but he will say it nicely. And I go, those words didn't even cross my mind that I would have never even thought to phrase it that way because that is not how I was raised, right? It was very direct. It was very demanding. It was very German-like. And, so, and he was raised, I mean, he's part German, but I call him a mutt because he's a little bit of everything. Um, but he is Norwegian as well. And they're just much easier going, softer. I. It does not that I, my brain doesn't work like that. It's not, I can, but it takes a lot of my energy <laughs> yeah, to be I, soft. I understand that. I, I totally understand that. And uh, it's, it's interesting that we kind of started off talking about language and tone because that's, um, we, there were a lot of those discussions uh, last night here at our house. So that's, uh, yeah, that's a little bit, uh, interesting but that's not this podcast that's another podcast if you want to go do work on relationships and tone of voice and, and but other it things. explains our social media <laughs> posts brian it explains yes. why sometimes we may get a little bit louder or passionate about something we're not yelling about it it is our passion it is what we believe right and so occasionally that is taken out of context because they of who's listening Okay. So it's, I, I've talked about it before on podcasts and it, and it happened on TikTok. Do you remember, were you any part of the Hay War debacle that apparently I may have started? No, I stay out of some of those. <laughs> <laughs> if I am not knowledgeable in something, I am out. I will listen and I will be educated, but I'm out. There's a lot of other folks on several other social media platforms that I wish would do that if they didn't feel that they were very knowledgeable, but that's beside the point. Anyway, what I'm saying is, um, so through that whole thing, you know, I, I kind of checked out for a while. It's like, yeah, it's too much heat, too much drama. I'm just not, you know, I'm not going to consume that social media for a while. When I was talking to, uh, to Caitlin a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, um, I recall seeing somebody, I think they were kind of on the conventional side. They're like, yeah, and that one regenerative guy that's always yelling. Like, is that me? <laughs> you or Trevor. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's probably either me or Trevor, but uh, you know, I, 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 I guess I can kind of own that one. I guess I can kind of take that. I one. try not to, because it does not open up for conversation. And I think that's a lot of what's lacking in the industry as a whole is conversation. And so I really love to learn and I really love to see other people's viewpoints on things. And if you want to have that, if you want to do regenerative, great. If you want to do traditional, great. I frankly don't care how you run your operation. It's your land. You run it how you wish. Um, but we're so busy yelling at each other sometimes that we can't have the conversation. And so I try really hard not to, but I will always have energy behind what I say. Yes. And sometimes a little more than others. 
energy, passion, and okay, maybe sometimes that comes across as, as quote, yelling, but uh, you know, I'm just trying to get a point across with as few words as quickly as I can. Right. Because and some people know, forget that that was 30 seconds or it was 60 seconds or it was a three minute video and you didn't get it all. And then you have to explain yourself and I just quit. And like, if you're on TikTok or if you're on social media, you know, we have a limited amount of time. And so if you don't know that, then I'm not going to waste my time explaining it. Yes. But you do have to step away. I stepped away last week. Um, We went on vacation and I'm like, that was so nice. Where did you go? No social media for a week. I didn't have to argue with anybody all week. <laughs> okay. Was it just a social media vacation or did you go somewhere? No, we went to Fort Worth. Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've not been down there. And so I hung out, we hung out down there, went to the stockyards and I'm trying to do, uh, I'm trying to find a venue for a client think tank. And so I'm like, oh, Fort Worth is nice. Cause you know, farmers and ranchers do not actually ever leave unless it's for a reason and then there must be a destination for the wife and so I'm always trying to find some place where everybody kind of wants to go so there's a reason to go like we can go to the conference and then we could stay a day or two and see Fort Worth I I mean I I, that's reasonable that's reasonable I've done Nashville before and that's nice that's one of my favorite spots but Nashville has gotten a little Vegasy, and so, I don't know. I was just checking it out. It's nice. The stockyards are nice, but you can't, they're not a super ton to do for farmers and ranchers. And the traffic is horrible. Yeah. I, the couple times that I've been to Fort Worth in the last few years, it's not been ever something that was really interesting to me because it seemed like it's a lot of bars and nightclubs and music and then not a whole lot of yeah. livestock yard things. Yeah. It is, it is a lot of, well, I don't drink, so we didn't go out or we don't do nightlife stuff either. <laughs> We're old and boring. <laughs> and so I, we didn't go out to any of that stuff either, but I do like Nashville because if somebody that's coming does want to go out, cause there are funner people in the world than me. And so if those people do want to go out, there's a reason to go out. It's an experience. And that in, in Fort Worth, I didn't, even on the, um, even in the stockyards, like Billy Bob's wasn't, they didn't have anything really going on. And then you had to pay to get in. I'm like, why do I have to pay to get in your bar? Are you not going to make enough off the drinks in here? So we stayed too far away. So of course it was dark and we don't want to go out. You know, you, even if you leave at five, that's rush hour. So you got to wait till seven, seven 30. Well, we're old and we're like, well, that's like our bedtime. That's almost bedtime. So now we're just staying in. <laughs> I've almost had that exact conversation. Almost. It's a real thing when you get into your 40s and 50s. It's a real thing. Yeah. So now that we've been here for a while and I don't probably wasted a few minutes of everybody's time. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Mary Jo and where you're at and what you do? Okay. I am in Bismarck, North Dakota. I am actually just down the road from Gabe. If all of your listeners know who Gabe is, 
Um, and so I am the author of the Farming Without the Bank book, and I teach farmers how to use the infinite banking concept so they don't have to go to the bank to borrow money to farm. Awesome. Will it happen overnight? No. So stay tuned. But <laughs> it is not an instantaneous solution, but it is definitely something that needs to happen. Yes. So yeah. just and I grew up on a. So I don't know if you knew this, but the reason that farmers are important to me, and you might care to know, is that I grew up on a farm ranch operation. So my dad was a purebred breeder. We had Charlotte cattle for 30 some years. Right. Um, and, and now him and my brother farm. And you're from there in North Dakota, right? Yes. Yep. I'm from the Southwest side of North Dakota, but I'm in Bismarck now. Okay. Um, kind of the direction that I, that I kind of want to go, like for the next however long we're here is how can somebody that say working in an office job that wants to do farming, do ranching on whatever scale, multi-species or, you know, buy a big cow ranch, whatever scale, how can somebody that's, you know, currently stuck in the urban rat race, nine to five sucky commute, the overpriced house with a small yard, in a big city that's too built up with too much crime and too high taxes. How can these tools, how, and how can the infinite banking concept be used to leverage assets, I guess, for lack of a better term, because I'm uneducated, how can they be, you know, how can you uh, leverage that to be able to start a farm or ranch or, you know, operation to grow food without having to go to the bank? Mm -hmm. So, Here's the biggest thing that I see with that group of people is that we are working our eight to five job and we're putting money in a 401k. And so because we get this match, we're putting all this money in our 401k, but then when we quit, we need that money to start the operation or we can't start the operation because we have all this money in the 401k. So people are putting in anywhere between three to 10%. So why would we not take those same dollars and just redirect those into the infinite banking piece of it, which for me, it's a thought. So infinite banking is not all money. Infinite banking, the infinite banking concepts, a lot of it is thought process. 90% of what I do is teaching you to think differently about how you use money. Right. Because if you want to make a small change, change what you're doing, and that's a spending habit or a saving habit or an insurance policy. If you want to make that big change, you have to have a change in your thinking. Right. And that's exactly what I'm mentioning, right? So when we talk about thought process, you've got my thought process. The noise of society has said, we need to put money in our 401k. And therefore we can't start our business. We can't start our farm. We can't buy land. We can't buy cattle. We can't go into partnership. We can't do anything because all this money is going to this 401k because we have to have retirement. Well, I'm going to challenge you and say, really? Are we utilizing our money correctly? Could we instead redirect those dollars and do infinite banking, which is putting that money into a whole life policy that's structured so that we have this cash value, this abundance of cash value. And that money is we have the ability to use that. So we, I call it an and asset. So what happens is instead of putting it in a 401k, 
I'm going to put it in this life insurance policy. And then I can borrow from there and I can buy cattle and I can buy my land and I can start by buying equipment. Then I pay that back because you have to pay it back. And when I pay it back, I also have it for retirement. So many, even if you don't do the infinite banking concept, I'm going to challenge you. Even if you don't do infinite banking, people will say, well, I cannot use my 401k money to go buy 10 cows. I can't do that because that's my retirement. But if you took, if when you sell calves and you pay back the money you use from your 401k, would it not be there for retirement? The reason we think we can't do that is because nobody has taught us to be an honest banker and pay ourselves back. Even if you don't use my concept, you are still the banker in that scenario. You just use 401k money instead of life insurance company money. It's the only difference. Even if all you have is a savings account and you go buy cows, if you never pay that savings back, you don't have that money again. Right. Pay yourself back. That's, that's the piece of infinite banking. That's the thought process. And Nelson Nash, the founder of the concept, said, be an honest banker. I don't care what the dollar amount is. All those beautiful cows behind you, if you paid cash for them, did you pay yourself back for the cash you used? That would be or, uh, in, in the ranching for profit school. That would be an opportunity cost. Yep. Mm -hmm. Ranching for profit and what I do very much coincide. Very much. Ranching for profit is missing the tool. The only reason I'm using life insurance is because it provides death benefit, but we never take our money out of the policy. We borrow against it. So if we have $10,000 in there, that's earning compound interest and dividends, even while we use it. Okay. Like just in the last few minutes, I, I I get like the whole concept of what you're saying. Okay. I get how it works. I don't understand hardly any of it. Um, That's why I wrote the book. <laughs> I've read the book. You, I, I've read both your books and you signed them and I still don't quite get it. Okay, let's Granted, talk. I haven't read them recently. <laughs> and then you are not the only one confused. So let's clear it up. So how would you explain the infinite banking concept to a five-year-old? So if you have, here's a, here's an example. If you have money in savings, right? You have $10,000 in savings. You're going to take that money out to buy cows. Okay. Right. Money is gone. We have cows in exchange for the money, right? Okay. We do, we, the, but before we bought the cows, the, the savings account was paying us interest. Okay. I mean, let's forget the fact that the banks suck and that they're not paying interest, but let's just pretend it's 1980 and yeah, we they, were making some money in the savings account. Yeah, okay? They, they, they so, barely beat inflation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's just pretend that the bank is, because the concept doesn't matter how much interest they're paying you. Because most, but most people will say, well, I can make more on the cows. 
But when we took the money out of our savings account, we gave up the ability to make interest on that money in exchange for cattle. Now, with the policy, if I, I don't take $10,000, I borrow against it. So my $10,000 is still earning me interest and dividends. Let's just say that's two and a half, three percent. Well, the insurance company sends me their money and then I go buy the cows with their money. Okay, so we took our $10,000 out of savings and we bought a whole life policy that we can borrow $10,000 against, okay? So it almost seems like you're creating money out of thin air to some extent. No. Because you still have you still have a policy that's worth $10,000 that's going to gain interest and you mm -hmm. take $10,000 out of that to go buy the cows. No, we borrowed against it. We didn't take 10,000 out of the policy. We borrowed against it. We if we buy cows from savings, we take it out. We physically remove it. Okay. So you're just, you're withdraw. taking you're taking a loan out. Correct. Correct. We're on borrowing. on your asset that is your insurance policy. Yep. Okay. So remember back in the day in the 80s when people would buy a CD that paid 12% interest and then they would go to the banker's office and they would say, "Hey, I want to use that CD as collateral." Yes. This is the exact same concept except it's a life insurance policy. My cash value is collateral and the bank is, or the life insurance company is lending me their money. So I'm still earning that interest just like they did with their CDs. I'm still earning that interest long-term compounding the rest of my life. Well, I use their money and then I pay them back a little bit of interest short-term because I'm going to take short-term notes, right? But my money is compounding. So a lot of times I compare it to buying cows. You don't have, you don't buy a cow and then you have one or two calves and you're like, man, she's a really good cow. I'm going to get rid of her and I'm going to go buy a new one, start all over. That'd be silly. Exactly. But when you have one cow, that's really good. We can pass on those genetics, right? So if they, we keep building a better herd. It's the exact same thing with the policy. The money is in there and it's building and it's building on itself and it's building on itself and it's building on itself while we use the life insurance company's money. And the life insurance company does not care what we use it for. They don't care when we pay it back. We control that loan. And the reason they don't care is because we're going to die. And if we die with a loan, they just take it out of the death benefit. Okay. But here's the piece that a lot of people miss is the death benefit. So not only am I. Not well, how's only it going to benefit me? I'm dead. No, but it might benefit your kids. <laughs> I, I get that. I was just right? making a joke. So, but I know, but this is, this is serious to me because we have a suicide rate in farming and ranching that's astronomical. And that suicide rate comes in because financially we can't survive. We financially can't survive because it was not passed on correctly. Because nobody left us death benefit to operate. Nobody left the off the farm kids death benefit. So we didn't have to buy the farm again, or at least not buy it at full price. 
So, so many people say, well, the suicide rate is because farming is hard. Yes, it's hard because we've made it hard because for generations we've not estate planned and we've left life insurance out of the equation. So not only can we use it for banking and we can control that loan and we can earn an uninterrupted compound interest, but we also have a death benefit that we may have paid 20 cents for every dollar that is not taxed, my friend. That is not taxed. That is income tax free to your heirs. When I die, my children will get a dollar that I paid 20 cents for and they are not gonna pay income tax on that. They may pay estate tax, but if I'm really smart, I'll have a trust own the policy so there's not even any estate tax. Holy the wealthiest people in this country use life insurance and in the exact, the Rockefellers buy it on every single one of their family members. And it just keeps going back in. Okay. You like you hit on something and I want to go chase this rabbit. So while you're just talking, I wrote down Pandora papers putting, and that was my note about putting everything in a trust and having a system of, you know, a trust with the LLCs to, to hold all your different assets. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's exactly what, what the ultra wealthy do. And that's what the Pandora papers was about. Cause that's why I made the note. Um, so it's real funny you mentioned that. So it sounds like this is a tool that I'm not, okay. I'm going to say it, that quote, they don't want you to know about because this is how quote, they tran transferred their generational wealth through the years. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that even they don't, you know, I used to think that too. Oh, they don't want us to know. We just don't know because we don't pay attention and they've created enough noise that in 74 and 80 IRAs were born. Before 74 and 80, you go find an 80, 90 year old, they'll probably have full life insurance and they're probably using it. If I advertise on the radio, I don't get any clients, but I sure do get a lot of 80 year olds calling me and telling me how awesome their life insurance policies are because that's what they're using. But in 74 and 80, IRAs were born. And what happened? The government said, we have brokers that will take care of you. No longer should the pensions, pensions used to be put into annuities, Brian. That is basically a life insurance policy. Government got involved in the retirement market. <laughs> they did. So what happened is they created the 401k and IRA because it's a tax code, right? So right. they said, oh, you know what, employers, you no longer have to take care of your employees. They can take care of themselves. So we're going to create 401ks and IRAs. The market went like this and everybody was making 14, 15% rates of return in the market. And they still think that today. The Dave Ramseys are still saying, oh, you're going to make 12%. No, you're not. No, you're not. I have a calculator that proves it. No, you are not. The market is not making that. There is no way after taxes, after fees, you are going to make 12%. You're lucky if you're making four. But that is, we are still living on that bubble. So all this noise was created. And what happened is life insurance kind of fell by the wayside. And the companies did a really horrible job of educating their agents who then did a horrible job of educating the public. So people actually, and my family included, I have family members that they canceled 
their whole life policy. They canceled it and took that money and put it into a 401k. And where is it today? Lost several times and no death benefit to pass on to the family. I know a lot of folks that took a bath on their 401k in, in 2008 and again in 2014. That would be me. I didn't have it in 2014. I took that. I took all my money out in 08, put it in a life insurance policy. My policies, I've been watching them. I have several of them, but two of them I've been watching for whatever reason, I've been borrowing money and paying it back. So I've been looking at the cash value, but while everybody lost 30% in their policies, mine are growing $800 a month, one of them, and another one, $700 a month consecutively. Just, that's just what it does because it's guaranteed. There's no risk. It's not in the market. So was it, was the crash of 2008 the, was that one of your kind of watershed moments that led you to discover the infinite banking concept? So I was always looking prior to 08 and 09. Like I was reading every book I could. I was reading Robert Kiyosaki stuff. I was trying to find a way to do it. And, you know, there was no Google. It was Yahoo back then. And so I ironically at that in 2010, I was introduced to the concept and I thought everybody was going to jail and I thought it was illegal. I'm like, this is crazy. And this, I like this guy's book. This becoming your own banker book is absolutely amazing. Like he, it makes sense to me, but how come nobody knows? And you can go on your state insurance website and it'll tell you how to use cash value. It'll tell you all that stuff, you know, and that it's just, it's a little bit crazy that we don't know, but I don't, I, I don't know that I would go as conspiracy as to say they don't want us to know. They do want us to put money in IRAs and 401ks. And by doing that, that comes back to your first question. That's going to stop us from building. So anybody that I meet with, I'm like, why are you doing that? Do you plan to work there until you're 59 and a half or 65? No, I want to farm. Then why would you put money somewhere that you're going to need access to and you're going to have a 10% penalty and you're going to have to pay tax later? You know, like maybe paying tax later isn't such a bad deal because you'll have the write-offs of land and cattle and all this other stuff, but you're going to lose 10% off the top. And then when you talked about taxes theft before we even got started today, (laughs) let's talk about a 10% penalty. I call it the stupid tax. Right. It is a tax because they, they don't want you to take money out of your retirement plan because you are not smart enough to know what to do with your money. Hmm. How do seems they be, know? Seems to be a recurring theme with our government lately. If you know how to ranch and you know how to farm better than you know how to manage a market portfolio, do you think you could probably do better there? Don't tell me how to use my money, Mr. Government. I'll use it how I wish. But the fact that we put our money there and we gamble with it, and then there's a penalty and we're like, oh, shucks, there's a penalty. My German passion says, what? (laughs) Whoa, hold up. Why are you penalizing me to access my money? Oh, because you need it because we have such huge national debt. Mm, Okay. 
by putting money in a 401k, we basically just handed it over to the government and said, hey, if you want to take it, you sure can, because it is now out of our control. But if I put money in my life insurance policy, that's a private contract with a private company. They can't come take that. Yeah, I, I'm I'm just sitting here thinking about how many more how many more mouths get to feed at the trough when you invest in a 401k versus when you buy a whole life policy. I can't because a 401k is an or asset. You put money in that 401k or you buy cows or you start your ranch. You put money in the life insurance policy and you have the policy and you can borrow against it to buy cows and you can borrow against it to start a business. It's an and asset. That money's not locked and it's growing. So at some point you might put, let's say you put $100,000 of premium in, but your cash value is 150. Oh, I just made 50 grand and I used my money all those years to buy cows. So I have the 50 grand and I have everything else I did with that money outside the policy. Is it going to work that slick to begin with? No, no. I always tell people you're going to hate me for the first three years. We have to buy death benefit. It is life insurance, but long-term I'm going to be the best person you ever met because we're going to have the compound interest and we have death benefit to save these farms. Because if you're not going to save it, why do you get up and work so hard every day to build it? That's if you don't. If you're not going to plan. Yeah, why bother? If you don't know who you're passing it on to, it's not regenerative. Right. Good point. You know, and, and I've been challenged on that before and um, I don't have a solid plan. And you, you have to, you should, because guess what? I've, I've delivered five death claims, four in the last year, 65, 27, 47, and 32 years old. Don't say things like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the best person to talk to about if we're going to die. But it is, I have yet, I have clients that are well older. I have clients that are 80. They're not dying. It's all my young people dying. You don't know. You don't know when you graduate. It, you just graduate. Yeah. I mean, it could be tomorrow. Hopefully it's not, but it, it could be tomorrow. And we all need to have some sort of succession plan in place. Even written in crayon on a napkin is better than nothing. Because well, you need to have the death benefit. Because if you die tomorrow, Brian, do you want your wife to have to make a hasty decision? Does she have to sell the land? Does she have to sell the cows? What does she have to do? Because your children need their mom to help them mourn dad's passing. Your wife needs time to mourn her husband's passing. People don't, I, I say this, I've seen way too many widows and widowers and parents. I have delivered death benefit checks to parents. Guess what? The last thing they care about is when that crop comes off and when those cows get fed. They have to do it out of necessity, but they're doing it crying the entire time. They, you're, that death benefit is there so your family has time to cor correctly mourn your passing. I, some people mourn quickly. Some people it takes years. Most of my widows, it takes them 
a year to at least have a conversation with me without crying every single conversation. They can't think straight. They don't know what they're doing. The banker's saying do this. Mary Jo's saying do that. The kids are saying do this. They are so confused and all they're trying to do is deal with the fact that they just lost a spouse. It sucks. The death benefit is there to say, you know what, Mr. Banker, shut the hell up. I will get you your bank payment. I will get, I will pay somebody to feed these cows because I have the money to do it because the check's going to come. And then I'll figure out what to do when I'm emotionally and mentally stable to do that. I, I can definitely see how that would give, you know, somebody a, a great sense of security and take a lot of weight off and not having to worry about a lot of things, you know, worry about those things. Mm -hmm. But yes, it ultimately we need to plan. But if we don't plan, just go get some death benefit. I frankly don't care what you buy. Term or whole life. Don't go buy universal life variable or indexed, but buy some death benefit. Term, if nothing else. But we have we have this huge disconnect with estate planning. We have this huge belief system that farmers and ranchers have to go to the bank to get money. But if you are working off the farm and you're making a transition, you have the best opportunity ever because we have off the farm income to start building that banking system. So when you're ready to go full time, you can do that. We can gradually move over. I don't care if you're established. I frankly don't care if you're you're ranching full time right now and you have three 500 head of cattle. I don't care. That is going to be a slow transition and it's not going to happen overnight. How do we slowly get ourselves out of the banking system? And if you're 60 years old listening to this, you probably won't in your lifetime. I'm going to be honest, but do your kids need to go through the same thing that you did? Do we need to make it that hard? Every gener Think about this. Every generation buys the farm from the bank. And the government, it seems. Mm -hmm. Can we just buy it once? That'd be nice. Right? Would, it, would we not have more farmers? Yeah, probably. And guess what? The ones that don't go through ranching for profit and manage their money, they're going to fall by the wayside anyway. They're going to just, they're, they're gone. It doesn't matter if you give it to them. It doesn't matter if they buy it, they're gone. You, if you are not managing your books, you're not going to survive. I don't care if you're a business or a farm because farms are actually businesses, right? If you are not managing your books, you're not going to be around. Doesn't matter what kind of handouts you get. Doesn't matter what kind of government money you get. Doesn't matter if mom and dad and uncle John helped you. If you can't manage it and you don't know how to work, it's not going to survive. So there's, yes. a, there's just a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so where does somebody start? Well, I don't know. It depends on where you're at financially. I mean, I had a call yesterday with a guy that's an existing client. And he's like, yep, I need to do another policy. We're looking at 50, 75,000 a year, right? I had a call today with a guy that said, I got, I got a lot of credit card debt. He wouldn't even tell me how much it was. I said, then I'm not doing anything for you. We have to wait. I need you to pay off your credit card debt. And I need you to know your numbers. He didn't know his numbers. He has no idea what his gross income is. No idea what his operating expenses are. He doesn't know that. Well, if you don't know that, then I can't help you. 
right? I need to know where I need to know what you owe money on. And so when we, I have hour and a half meetings with clients. So when we go through all of that, then I come back and give you suggestions. Okay, this is where we're going to start. If you are, I the guy that I talked to yesterday, he's like, oh yeah, I, you know, I bought a new vehicle with cash this year. I said, you did, you did what? <laughs> I said, that's $20,000 gone, gone. I said, you could have put that in the policy that could have earned uninterrupted compound interest the rest of your life. And you could have just paid it back. Could you, could you maybe run through a five-year example of, of that, of having, of the difference between, you know, putting $20,000 more toward premium or taking 20, that $20,000 of cash and buying a car. Um, and let, let's not worry about depreciation. Let's just worry about opportunity cost of interest. Okay. So let me, I'm going to pull up my calculator while I'm talking to you. So if this is how I look at it. So if he puts $20,000 a year into a policy and he can't do it, let's just use 20,000. If you put $20,000 into a policy and let's say that that policy earns you three and a half percent, this guy is in his 30, 28. I think he's, he's 28 or 30. Um, let's just say he's 30 and let's say that he dies at 85. So he's got 55 years for that money to earn him interest. That $20,000 turns into $132,000 income tax free. Okay. Instead, he went and bought a vehicle and paid cash for it, which is now a depreciating asset and well, depending on the year. Um, a depreciating asset and not worth $20,000. But if he put it in the policy, he could have had the 132. He could have had the depreciating asset. He could have did both. And then he would have, yes, he would have had a loan on the policy. So let's just say I'm going to pay that back over five years, pay $5,000 a year back to the policy. If I didn't have the cash to buy it, I was going to go to the bank and borrow money and I'd have had a payment anyway. Right. And I had the $20,000 in savings. So I probably was putting money into savings every month in order to save up to get the 20,000. So the monthly cash flow was there. Mm -hmm. So if I borrowed against the policy and I make a payment back to the policy, is it actually a payment or does it act like a deposit back into savings? Because if I put $5,000, if I make a payment to my loan for $5,000, because it's a payment, I shouldn't do air quotes, because it's an actual payment. So if I make a payment back to my policy, I have access to that $5,000 immediately. 10 days, I can borrow against it again. Okay. So at the end of five years, I'll have my $20,000 back. Is there is there anything... Um, like when you're, when you're taking money out against your policy, is there like, is there, but is there fees that'll nickel and dime you to death? Is there percentages that get shaved decimals that get rounded down? Nope. You just take up, well, you don't take the money, you borrow against it. But when you borrow the money, you just, they just send you a check. You pay the insurance company interest on that money. It's not free money, right? Cause you use their money. 
So you have to pay them interest, but it's a mutual company that we do business with. So when we have a mutual company, who owns part of the company? All the policyholders. Right. So when they charge me interest, that money goes back to my company. And if there's a profit, they share that in the form of a dividend. So do I care? It's many people will say, well, I, I have a, um, I think it's FSA or um, FHA, F farm credit, farm credit does this. When they have a loan, they'll get a dividend from farm credit. Yes. So they're like, it's not really a 4% loan. It's more like 2%. Same exact scenario. Okay. Farm credit is mutual. Whole life insurance company is mutual. So we're getting a share of that profit. Okay. I mean, it, that, that makes sense because I are a farm credit customer and I do oh, get, okay. I do get that nice little, yeah, dividend. you know, that dividend back, which, um, last year it was a lot cooler than it's going to be this year because we, we don't want to talk about what the fed has done with interest rates and right. what that does to everybody's, you know, variable rate loans and, mm -hmm. you know, short-term operating lines. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, my interest rate is nowhere near what it was in March. It's gotten kind of, kind of disgusting. Right. And here's the other thing, your policy, like right now, your line of credit is it wasn't locked. It's variable. Yeah. So your line of credit's probably close to, I've heard 7% right now. A lot of people, six and a half, seven, some people are up towards eight. If it's not seven, they'll probably raise it to that the next chance they get. I, yeah. I mean, they haven't missed a month to, to raise my rate. So with the life insurance company, we are seeing them raise our loan rates as well. Some companies have a fixed rate. Some companies have variable rates. The companies that I use have variable rates, but they can only go up a half a percent and they can only raise it upon your policy renewal. So we might see them go to 4.75, 5.25, but they're not going to go much higher than that. So when we look back at Nelson Nash, um, who wrote Becoming Your Own Banker, the reason this concept even exists is because he got stuck with a half a million dollar operating note at 23% in the 80s. He was buying land and doing the real estate thing. His partner defaulted on his 300,000. So Nelson actually had $800,000 at 23%. He Ow. was borrowing against his life insurance policies because he realized he had life insurance to borrow against. His loan rates were five, six, seven, and 8%. Never more than 8% in the 80s when interest rates were 23. Okay. So- if we, so many people said to me six months ago, well, you're an idiot. Why would I borrow at 4.25 when I can go to the bank and get 2%? Well, then go to the bank and get 2% and leave the money in your policy. So if an opportunity arises, you have the money to go do that. Or better yet, leave the money there. So if the bank decides to increase your rate to 7%, you can borrow from the policy and pay them off. Now, today at 4%, I'm a hero. And everybody's like, geez, I wish I had some money in life insurance. Yeah, you got to start though. Right? You have to start. But if you would have started when you read the book, you may have had the money. I'm just going to use you as an example and pick on you. You may have had the money 
just say, you know what, farm credit, I'm out. I'm going to use my policy now as my line of credit at 4.25 and the cattle markets are down. I, if I can pay it back, I can pay it back. If not, I'll just pay the interest only. No big deal. Sounds like a really good deal. And it, it, I'm sure that there's somebody out there going, it's a scam. It's a scam. It's a scam. And I've had accountants like smart accountants. Well, people I think are smart accountants not be able to read your book and not be able to not be able to talk to me about these things because they don't understand. And I don't, why is that? It is because. Oh, accountants. I actually like bankers more than I like accountants. Um, accountants have been taught you buy term and invest the difference. Accountants are not life insurance agents. They do not understand how it works. Here's a good example. We have an accountant in town here who is, he's an accountant to one of my clients. And he told my client, she's an idiot for buying life insurance. He said, I tried that. And, and he has, he has, I had about three of this. I've had about three people that use him. The other two people, he talked him out of doing it. And so finally I got mad and he's like, and I called him and I'm like, what's your deal? And he goes, well, it doesn't work. I tried it and it didn't work. You know what he bought? He bought universal life, which is not whole life. It's tied to the market. Not all insurance is equal. He did not borrow the money. He took it out. There is two different ways to take your money out of a policy. You can borrow or you can withdraw. He withdrew it, which means it was taxable. You can't withdraw it. You have to have an agent that understands. He didn't know what he was doing. So the client I have today that is still using him and still has her policy with me, he doesn't even ask her anymore to see her policy. He's like, huh, I guess that does work. Huh, I guess it does. They don't either want to understand it. They don't want to admit that they don't understand it because accountants have this ego typically. Now, I know good accountants as well. They typically have this ego where they're like, oh my gosh, I know everything. I'm an accountant. No, you don't because you're not an attorney and you're not a life insurance agent. You are an accountant. And so how the policy works, a lot of them just don't know about it, but yet they want to tell you, ah, no, that there's no way. Well, I thought everybody was going to jail too, remember? Right. I mean, you have to do your due diligence. But yeah, they don't, or they don't read it. A lot of accountants just won't read the book. I don't know. I have a, I have an accountant as a client. He's like, this is the best thing ever. Tells all his clients about it. He's like, this is amazing. But you have to be open-minded, right? It's no different than regenerative agriculture. You can tell me it doesn't work or you can try it and go, oh, look, that does work. Brian is making money. That's interesting. A, a rancher that's making money. Isn't that a concept? I don't know about that this year. It's been a little rough, but yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if I look at my current clientele, I would, I have not actually ran the numbers because I don't track how many people do re regenerative, but I would venture to say 80% of my new clientele is doing regenerative agriculture over traditional. And why? 
because traditional farmers do not see the value of what I'm teaching because they are stuck in a mindset. It is no different than why don't they see the value of regenerative agriculture because they're stuck in a mindset. And so what I do coincides very clearly with that because you guys are already open to thinking differently. You're already asking questions. You're already not scared to try something or to at least have the meeting. Because if it's not going to work for you, I'm going to say, you know what, this is not going to work. Like that guy today, he wanted to start in the absolute worst way. And I said, no, I said, it's going to be good for me. I'm going to make some commission as the agent. I said, that's going to be great for me, but it's really going to suck for you. And I'm going to leave you with credit card debt. That is not a good idea. I won't do it. So let's just wait, wait until all that's taken care of. And then we'll come back. But they're scared to have that conversation just like they're scared to try regenerative agriculture. And I think for a long time, you know, we've been taught that land is an asset and, you know, if you need money, you can just go to the bank and, and borrow against your land as an asset. And it sounds like to use, you know, the, the benefit paying whole life insurance policy that you can borrow against that takes a little longer to set up. It requires some planning, some foresight to say, it's not, I need this right now. It's, mm-hmm. I might need this in a couple of years or in a couple of months. And maybe that's where we went wrong is that that these tools you're talking about do take a little while you know, to build and to put into place and to be able to access access that revenue stream Whereas if I needed money, I could theoretically take, you know, the deeds and go to the bank with, you know, some documents and walk out. And a pint of blood in your child's birth certificate because they're going to need it all. Right. I mean, it is a, it can, do we wait to use it though? No, because if you want to, let's say you want to use it for operating, but you need a hundred thousand dollars for operating, but you also want to buy some calves or some cows in the meantime. Okay. So then use the policy to buy some cows and then you pay it back. And then when you have enough for operating, then you just switch it to start use it for operating, but we don't just let it sit. Now there are times where we may, and we may say, you know what, I don't need to use this right now, but in two or three years, then I am going to use it and I'm going to make that switch. But that's what I'm here to help everybody with is when do we, how do we use it? What do we use it for? I mean, I don't just sell you a policy and go, well, you have a really nice day there, Brian. I hope good luck with this. No, I want to talk to you. I want to know what you're doing because they're like us, for example, we bought land. I used all the money from the Paul. I, I drained my policies and I paid cash for the land because I got a better price on the ground And I got to close in 14 days and I did not have to pay closing costs. I didn't have to pay fees. I didn't have to prove my income. I did not waste time with the banker. So now I went to the bank and said, okay, I want a line of credit against that land because I used all my cash, right? So should I need more cash? I want a line of credit, but I only want that line of credit if I need it. You know how long I've been working on that? Two months. Still don't have my line. He had to ask for approval. It took time. I didn't have to ask for approval to buy the land. 
And it's not like it was in the 80s when granddad could go into the banker that he'd had a relationship with for 40 years and the banker could give him a yes, no that day. Now, all of our small town banks are owned by big corporations, probably on the East Coast. And if they want to do anything that's outside of the normal or even smells risky, that has to go all the way up to their either their algorithm that's going to tell you no or their board of directors that has no frame of reference for agriculture and is just going to look at numbers. Yep. And not always. I, I love bankers. I, I don't like the banking system. Okay. I don't like fractional reserve banking where we are just printing money out of thin air. That is the whole point of infinite banking. If you talked, if, if Nelson were alive today he would say, you are part of the problem if you go to the bank, okay? But there are times where we need the bank. I still use, I have loans at the bank. Our, some of our land is financed at the bank. I just went and said, I need a line of credit as a what if, right? But if I go there, great. But I want to still be able to have control over here to some extent and be building that. So it's cohesive. It's a I'm going to use the bank until I don't need to. And when don't I need to? I don't know. That depends. I have people that want, you know, thousands of pieces of real estate because they have rental properties. They're always going to go to the bank. But then there's people like me who are like, if I never have to walk foot into a bank for a loan again, I will grow my operations slower so I don't have to because I don't want... Yes, it might be cheaper money, but when we closed on our, we have um, 160 acres. When we closed on that 160 acres, it was absolute hell. I have PTSD from that still. It was absolute hell. How do you make your money? How could, where, I need, I need 11 months of bank statements. Oh, I don't know. We have to get an appraisal. Oh my, it was, it was hell. And then $14,000 of closing costs. For what? For me doing all the work for you? Like when we do a loan on property, we don't look at the closing costs because what do we look at? What's my payment? And it's all wrapped up into a beautiful little package. And we don't look at that stuff. It added another half a percent to my loan with those closing costs. So did I really get a better deal than the policy? My time and the closing costs? No. Depends if you value your time. Even ranching for profit says your time is worth money. Yeah. And so are there times that I'm going to say, yes, go to the bank? Yeah, absolutely. If you can do a land loan at 3% for 30 years, I want you to go to the bank because I want you to use your policy to buy cows and to operate, maybe buy equipment. Even if you can get an equipment note for 2 3%, maybe 0% back in the day, Go get that equipment note and finance it there because we'll just leave the money in the policy. If we need it, we can use it to pay it. If we don't, no big deal because cash flow is king, not cash. Because you just said, I have my land that I could use for equity. I frankly don't care what your net worth is. That means absolutely nothing to me. The only reason the banker wants to know what your net worth is because he needs it for collateral. Right. I want to know what your cash flow is, because if you can't, if you don't have cash flow coming in, you're not paying for feed. 
You're not paying for fertilizer. You can't buy hay, right? You have to go to the banker and ask for that stuff. So people are like, oh, I'm debt free. Well, good for you. So is the bum on the street, but he's begging for cash flow. I don't, I want, I want to know what your cash flow is because we need to keep money moving in order to make more money. Because if you have, here's the worst scenario ever. And I just had one again, two weeks ago. And I had to tell the husband to listen to the wife, but they have a land note and they have a cattle note. If you want a ranch to go upside down, you have both notes and it is going to go upside down in a real hurry. I see it all the time. I do not know why. Well, I do know why. It's because when cattle prices drop, we can't make the land note and the cattle note, right? right. Because it depends when we bought. So this wonderful couple, they had a land note and a cattle note. And now they have to sell land so that they can pay for the operating they couldn't pay for. So if we can have a land note that's 30 years or 25 years, do that because it's a less of a cash payment, right? Finance that sucker as long as you possibly can. Do not fall for this crap of 15-year mortgages because your payment's going to be higher. Get that payment really low. If you have extra cash flow, then you could put it into a policy that you could eventually borrow against and pay the land off early if you want. Okay, I, I get what you're saying about taking the longer term, even though it might be a little higher rate to reduce the payment, to increase cash flow so you can put that cash into a policy. But that kind of like that kind of goes against conventional wisdom or okay, conventional wisdom. Terrible term, forget I said that one. Moving on. Um it like one of I know one of the things that Dave Dave Ramsey likes to talk about is it's the volume of interests. Mm -hmm. Yep, we talk about that too. Um the volume of interest matters. So but what if I, we can pay it off early, here's the thing with cash flow. And I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think I know where you're going. So if I, I, I'm glad you do, because I'm not real <laughs> sure I did. <laughs> so go ahead. Because I get this argument all the time. Okay. So let's say that we don't, let's just leave the policy out of it for right now. If we have a small cash, if we have a small payment, but we have more cash flow, could we then take the difference and buy more cows and make more money? We either give all, we either have a 15 year mortgage and we put all that money to the land or we put less to the land and buy cows to increase our production to make more money that we could what? Then put more money on that payment if we needed to. What we're doing with a, a shorter note and a bigger payment is we are growing the operation slower because we're going to wait 15 years to expand because all of our money is going to that land payment. Okay. Instead of taking the difference in just buying cows and increasing our herd, maybe we have the ability to rent more ground. Maybe we can run, maybe we can run yearlings or something for somebody, right? But if we take that difference and we put it in the policy, remember it's an and asset. So we can still borrow against it to buy the cows, grow the herd, rent the ground, whatever. Because it's not money that's locked up. But now we, we've earned, we have compounding. And if we want, if I run the numbers side by side, 
a 15 versus a 30 year mortgage, cash value in 15 years is going to be enough to borrow against to pay off the mortgage if you wanted to the bank. So yes, you still have loan payments back to your policy, but you get access to all that money right away. Okay. Right? So the longer the there the thought process is, oh, you're saving interest. Well, you're going to save that interest regardless if you pay it off early or not. The difference is, is that, and I know a person that they're in this situation right now, they refinance their house when interest rates were like three, 3.25 or something. He, and he refinanced to a 15 year mortgage. Life has changed dramatically for them. He can't make his, he, he's having a tough time making his mortgage payments. Instead of doing a 30 year note where he would be just fine today, now he's got this huge house payment and now he's stressed out because he can't make it. Well, he could have had a small one and just paid extra on it. Even if you want to leave me out of the equation. Of It's about cash flow. Cash flow is king. I, I think I saw somewhere, well, and this math is going to be off, but the difference between a 15 and a 30, say on the 30, your payment is $500 on the 15, your payment is 750. If you take that 30 and pay 750 or pay an extra 250 a month, instead of just that basic 500, you'll actually pay it off faster, like in 12 years or something. Hmm. Um, I've not I, seen that. And I think that like, uh, it was kind of the, kind of similar on, on a 15 year, on a 15 year note, like if you made one extra payment a year for the first three years, instead of 15, it'd be like 10 or 10 or 11 years, mm -hmm. just a little bit of extra money up front to knock down that principle. Mm -hmm. And that, but, that takes years off the back end. But here's the other thing you put $250 to a 3% note. Then you go to the bank and you're like, hey, can I borrow 250 at 5% for cattle? You could, you just, you had the 250. Just use your own money. You're either using your money or you're going to pay the bank and then you go to the bank and borrow the same darn money back. Yeah. It is, I'm telling you, the infinite banking concept is a thought process. It is more than just the policy. It's us challenging the thought process of the Dave Ramseys and the Susie Ormans. And I was a Dave Ramsey fan. I was cash only. My kids called me Mr. Krabs because I was a tightwad. I still am kind of a tightwad. But you are not the, we cannot get ahead in life if we wait until we're debt free for absolutely everything. We have to be smart about our debt. But if we want if we are struggling because how are we supposed to afford land? How are we supposed to afford cattle? Well, if you're overpaying on your notes, you can't. You have to then wait till it's all paid off and then you feel good. And then you have to go back to the bank. If you're gonna, if you're gonna pay off your, your land, then you have to go back to the bank and then now, okay, the land's all paid for. Now we're gonna go borrow for equipment, right? So we do these, we, we grow in segments instead of growing smart and managing the money and utilizing it correctly. All I'm doing is saying, hey, we have to use it differently. We have to think differently. And we have an asset 
that is going to allow us to have interest earning on it while we use it and provide death benefit. Is it, does it sound too good to be true? Yeah, it's, but it is what it is. I can't change that. I can't, it's just that we didn't know about it because people quit talking about it. Go talk to grandpa, great grandpa. They're gonna know. Why can't people, why can't people retire with pensions today? Unions are going broke because they used to put money in an annuity that was guaranteed. Annuities have guaranteed growth. Okay. Now they put money in the market. Which? There's no guarantees. <laughs> it's up, it's down, it's mismanaged. They have management fees, all the stuff that goes with it. And people think, oh, whole life, that's bad because Dave Ramsey says it's expensive. Is it expensive? You read in my book, I actually looked at the dollars. Out of cost per dollar of death benefit on term insurance is more expensive than whole life. Right. Okay. Explain it like you would a five-year-old, what the difference is between whole life, universal life, and term life. Okay. So there are two types of insurance. There's term insurance and there's permanent insurance. Okay. Term insurance is I'm going to buy it for a period of time, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. And when that period of time is up, the insurance is gone. Like, and all the premium you paid into it disappears. It's gone. Okay. Gone. Life insurance company took it. Term insurance is one of the best money makers for insurance companies because those terms are all done in regards to the fact that you're most likely never going to die. So only about one to 2% of those claims are ever, anybody ever has claims because they don't die in that period. That's why it's cheap, okay? Under permanent insurance, so that's term. Then we have permanent insurance and it's just an umbrella, okay? okay. Under that is whole life, universal life, variable life, indexed. And those policies are meant to go your entire life permanent insurance it's supposed to go until you are 100 or 121 years old now whole life is guaranteed by contract that money that the insurance companies uses premium they take those dollars and they buy bonds and real estate contractually you have guaranteed growth and guaranteed death benefit the only way for that policy to collapse is you not pay the premium or you don't ever pay loan interest back, okay? Universal life, when the 80s came about, insurance companies said, oh boy, the stock market has great rates of return. So we're gonna create universal life. So that rate of, they have a rate of return that is based on a market. Because the money is not invested in these secure portfolios, it's invested in market stuff. Because but in those greater policies, in those policies, there are fees and there are charges that are not figured in the premium. And there is cost of insurance. Now, in whole life insurance, there's cost of insurance. Cost of insurance is just how much is it going to cost the life insurance company over the next however many years until you're likely to die to pay this claim, okay? 
use the example of 20 cents for every dollar. That's the cost of insurance, right? Okay. So what's it going to cost the insurance company? So in a universal life, it's basically renewable term because universal is the chassis. So all we do is we have a we have a renewable term chassis. But what happens every year you get older, you get closer to death and it gets more expensive. And so the in whole life, that cost of insurance is locked. They figured it in. That, that's figured in your premium. Universal life, it's not figured in and it's not locked. So administration fees, cost of insurance, management fees all go up, starts to eat your cash value and your policy collapses. So then the insurance company said, well, this universal life stuff is kind of bad. We're getting our butt sued for it. So we're going to go, we're going to do variable universal life. Oh, okay. So now that's directly reflective of the market. Same fees, same charges, same whatever. That also collapses. Oh, well, that really sucks. So we're going to invent un indexed universal life. Now it's not directly tied to the market, but it's reflective of the market. Okay. And that's not performing real good. So that's not so great either. But that's the latest, newest, greatest life insurance. Because so many people say, well, I want to compare it to my investment. It's not an investment. It's a life insurance policy. And it's not about a rate of return. It's about what we can do with our money. And I always tell people, we do infinite banking because it's about liquidity control and guarantees. And we have to use the right product because if I sell you universal life and I see them all the time, I have an entire folder filled with bad policies and they're all policies that are sent to me that are collapsing. And we either have to try to save them or we, they end up canceling them or they end up losing them. And it sucks when it's a universal life policy and it was used as an estate plan and dad is 85 years old, not insurable. And we are no longer going to have death benefit for the off the farm kids. So now what? The whole estate has to be restructured because we told Susie and Jenny that they were going to get money. Yeah. So those policies are reflective of the market or tied to the market Fees and charges eventually eat it up. I've had way too much coffee this morning. You we need to take a quick break. So <laughs> we'll be right back. And we're back. So I'll try to lay off the coffee so maybe we can get through the rest of this. <laughs> so we were, um, I'm, I'm wondering about interest rates and rates of return versus inflation and you know it, it it was kind of a foregone conclusion two years ago when they started printing money for covid relief that you know and, and sending everybody checks that inflation was a certainty after that point and my personal feeling is the government reported inflation figure is a lot lower than the true inflation figure so And as, as we go forward through the next few months and, and, and years, you know, we, we talked earlier briefly about the eighties and that, you know, interest rates, farm interest rates got, you know, up into the high teens and in some cases, low twenties. Um, I think I even heard one guy 
one time was like 25 or 27%, just like horrible situation. I don't think we're headed that high this time, but I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 15% interest rates by the time this all kind of settles down and shakes out. So the question is that I would have, and it's a question that's been on my mind for a long time, is are there actually any investments out there that really are going to beat inflation long-term? Because if you put your money in the bank in a savings account, you know, over time, the erosive power of inflation, you know, it, it steals half your wealth from you, it seems like. Um, so I, I guess how to... How inflation proof or inflation resistant of an asset is a whole life policy? It is not going to protect you against inflation. It is going to grow. It is guaranteed to grow. But as I tell everybody who thinks that this, they all think that I'm trying to just give you the answer to everything. Okay, but, it, but is there such what? a thing as an inflation protected asset these days? I don't think so. Your real estate people are going to say that real estate is your gold. People are going to say gold and silver. I mean, I listen to them all or your crypto. People are going to say crypto is um, here's my take. You're going to have to do multiple things. And so my solution is why wouldn't I, if life insurance can't do it on its own, but it's the and asset. So why would I not put my money in there and borrow against it to buy real estate or borrow against it to buy gold and silver or borrow against it to invest in the market, right? Why wouldn't I have both things working for me at the same time? I just, we are at, I, I just read something or listened to something a couple of weeks ago that year to date food is 11% higher. And that was probably four weeks ago. I and so we have 11% inflation. It seems I don't like care. it's way worse. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's it's awful. And, you know, taxation is theft, but inflation is the biggest quiet theft and nobody knows about it. Everybody thinks that Walmart is the bad guy because their Oreos are more expensive. Right. Well, guess what? Walmart's not the bad guy. The government is the bad guy because they printed the money which costs Nabisco more to make the Oreo and Nabisco passed that down to Walmart and Walmart passed it down to you. We end up being the sucker in all of it. And so the, the guys at the top are not feeling the pain. It's the consumer that's feeling that pain. And so is, is there a hedge against inflation? It depends who you talk to. I'm not going to sit here for one second and tell you it's life insurance. But if you think it's gold, then use the life insurance in connection with the gold. If you think it's land, use the life insurance in connection with that. Because you could make that extra percentage in the policy long term and have the death benefit, right? But it is the, the longer we print money, the bigger the problem gets. And I don't know if you probably don't listen to my podcast because you don't have time, but the I've said this before. I have a whole podcast on this. It's that not people, that I don't have time. I I haven't made the time to listen to your podcast, and I'm going to apologize for that. Good answer, Brian. I should have at least listened to one or two episodes before we did this one. That That's okay, that, because 
this is questions that people that haven't listened will have, right? So that's, it's all good. Um, but I am a firm believer that low interest rates are not good. I prefer to have seven, 8% interest. A, because it helps my insurance company because we can buy bonds at a higher percentage rate, right? But what happened at 2% interest is we gave people the ability to spend money they didn't have because you could hardly afford not to buy it. So why did we have to print money during COVID? Because people couldn't be without a job for two weeks because they had loans that they were, it's, it is, well, we can't afford not to buy it. It's 2%. That is where we also talk about the volume of interest. Who cares if it's 2% if you have 10 loans at 2%? It's the volume of interest that matters. And so by, by keeping interest rates low, we just gave everybody permission to mismanage their money and spend money they didn't have, which then leads to these bigger issues. We talked about the, the 2008 housing market crash earlier. Um, there's a great movie about it. One of my favorite movies, The Big Short. Are you familiar oh, with it? it. Mm, yes. There's a, there's a scene that I'm thinking about where a few, where some of the characters go from New York down to Florida to investigate what's going on in the real estate market down there. And I think in the movie that was set somewhere around 2006, 2007. Right. And it was a, it was a young lady that had a job that paid cash and she had, you know, several houses that she was paying on. And the joke in the movie was this was a, a ninja loan, no income, no job, because it didn't require any documentation approved because, Hey, this was, this was subprime. I mean, these were the days of subprime and everybody gets a house. Everybody should have a house. Housing is basically a human right. So we need to make houses affordable and cheap for everybody. So the government's going to come in and open up this subprime loan program, right? So in, I got out of the Navy in February of 2006. Okay. In 2004, when I was on shore duty, when there were guys that were coming in that were an E3 in the Navy that were coming in and talking about buying their second or third flip house and how easy it was to get a loan and all they had to do was buy it. And the way these loans were structured, like you could get one with literally no income, no job, no paperwork, set it up to where you didn't have to make a payment for six months. So what guys were doing is they were going and getting this easy money they're going in and, you know, blowing through, doing a quick remake, makeover on these houses and a quick remodel and trying to flip them and make 30, 40 grand on them. And every once in a while, they'd get stuck with one and just be like, oh, I'll just rent it out. And when this becomes a thing that like, you know, 19 to 20 year old guys are doing and getting into, granted, they're being mentored by somebody else. They're putting up on an awful lot of risk. Like those are huge warning signs for me. I'm like, this is not sustainable guys. Like this is not sustainable. There is no way that this is going to, that, that this house of cards is going to continue to go on. Mm -hmm. I kept watching housing prices go up and up and up and up. And it's just, you know, people trading houses and flipping and flipping and flipping. And it was all powered by all this easy money coming into the mortgage markets and the subprime loans. And like, 
I, I saw it in 2000 in, in 05, 06. And I was like, I got to get out of here before this whole market collapses. Before this housing market collapses here because nobody can afford to pay their loans. I got to sell this thing. I got to get out of here. And you know that I'm not going to say that was like a huge driver to come into Kansas, but that was definitely a big con in the stay in Virginia category is, you know, I knew there was a housing market implosion coming. I thought it was coming a lot sooner. I thought it was just going to be a small correction in the local housing market. I had no idea it was going to be like global Armageddon in the financial markets in 2008. Wish but I the 2% loan rates have done the same thing to our housing market. Now the loan structure is more stringent. You have to have a job. You have to have income. You have to prove it. You have to give your last born and a pint of blood, right? But so you have to prove you can pay for it now. But with 2% loan rates, anybody can make that payment. I mean, it's no big deal. So what do we do? We're, we're paying for houses and we got cash and we're paying over what the asking price is. And pretty soon the housing market is back up to here. And I listen to a lot of real estate investors. And it's very interesting that you have people like BlackRock and all these other companies that are going in and buying neighborhoods in Florida, neighborhoods in Phoenix. And if you talk to real estate investors that have been doing this for 30, 40 years, one of them said to, um, I was at a conference a couple weeks ago, and one of them said, we're going to turn into Europe. We are, people are no longer going to be able to afford homes. It is going to be investors that own those homes and they're all going to be rented out because it is so expensive. Um, there is a difference also between 08 and today that I was not aware of until I came across Ken Gronbach. I did a podcast interview with him. He is a demographer. And he says the housing crisis, the it was kind of, well, he says it was onefold. I'm going to add twofold. So onefold being what you just talked about, twofold that we have, it is a, it is the demographics of our age group. We had boomers that were selling. Gen Xers didn't have the money to buy and there's not enough of us to buy. The difference now is there are more millennials than there are boomers. And so there, and there's not enough Gen Xers to take care of everybody, right? But there's not so, enough millennials to replace all of the boomers. The millennials are a much smaller generation than the boomers. No, they're bigger. Really? They're they're like a million. They're um they're like two hundred thousand more or something like that. Yeah, Ken, listen to my podcast with Ken. It is uh, or anything that you can find with Ken Gronbach's name. Like I listen to all, every podcast he was ever interviewed on. Because he is, it is extremely interesting that we have more millennials than boomers. Okay. So the millennials are starting to buy so that, that we have, we are short 500. Um, oh, what is the number? It is mil 5 million homes. Oh, I should, I'm not going to say it. We are short millions of homes because we do not have enough structures to house all the millennials if they were to go out and buy. So you are not going to see slowdown in Phoenix, in Vegas. You're not going to see that slowdown because the and millennials are very movable, right? They're not like us Gen Xers who want to just stay in our spot. They want to work from home. They want to, they want to tour. They're, they are not, they, they just don't, they're not operating like we are. Now, 
if you listen to any of my content on TikTok, you know I love my millennials. Like they're my favorite <laughs> people on the planet. Because the ones that work work and they're well, the, super the, smart. The millennials should be like everybody that needs to hear what you're saying. Yeah, well, and they're open to it because the millennials are not as stubborn or ignorant or easy believing like us Gen Xers who are like, well, that's what grandpa did. We're starting to question stuff, but uh, we, we we still were very, we're very like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Where the millennials are like, well, you guys are all just stupid. I'm going to question absolutely everything and you're going to get mad at me, but I'm going to question it. And I'm just questioning it. I'm just asking why, 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 right? They never quite got out of that two and three-year-old stage of why. It just kept going. And now we're annoyed with them. <laughs> now we're annoyed with them and I love them because they're asking why. They, they have tools to do things we've never done. And they're putting those tools to work. But back to my Ken Brock Gronbach thing. He has, it is very interesting that the housing market is going to have a different look to it. But the fact that we have had this cheap money has driven up car prices. It's driven up housing prices. It's driven up camper prices. It's driven up everything because we can make that payment now. Now at 7% interest, and here's where the millennials get pissed off at us Gen Xers and our, us boomers. Well, you guys say we shouldn't worry about it. Well, we've never seen it. Well, okay. So listen to us just once. Like, come on, you guys, I love you. Just listen once and understand the economics that we cannot continue to have 2% rates. Like, it can't, it is almost impossible because we're buying stuff. We're driving up our own cost of things. Now at 7%, it might bring that down a little bit. Everything is back where it needs to be. It's going to slow inflation enough to where we can catch our breath. And it needs to stay at a level that is reasonable. So people go, oh, look, maybe I shouldn't buy that half a million dollar house at 2% interest, you know? Maybe I don't need a brand new camper that I'm going to use once or twice a year. You know, it's a, it, it's very interesting. And it's also interesting, I'm just going to put this in here so you listen to it. But it's also interesting his take on China and how they will not be taking us over because they are dying because of their one child only. And people are so scared of China. And after I listen to him, I'm like, well, I'm not real scared of China. But he also says we don't have a shortage of food. So you go listen to that and then you can debate him on that one. And that's uh that's what Ken Grunbach? Ken Gronbach. Yep. You'll have if you can message me the correct spelling of his name, that'd be great. It's, yeah. G-R-O-N-B-A-C-H. Okay. I got it close enough. Uh so it's funny you brought that up about China and their, you know, pending demographic issues. With their uh, with their old one child per couple policy, uh, there's there's a guy that I listened to, Peter Zion Zion Z E I H A N. Uh, we've talked about him before on on the podcast. He is um, a geopolitical analyst. And I just heard his name recently. Oh, he had a wonderful book that came out. Uh, he finished writing it in February, and he submitted it to his publisher like right around the time that Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah. So it, and 
I kind of became aware of him around that a little bit before that. Um, so anyway, the, his most recent book is called The End of the World is Just Beginning. And it's it's amazing. And ever since then, um, if I see a webinar pop up that he's done recently, I watch it. He has a almost every day he puts out a three to five minute YouTube video on just kind of his take of some event recently or, you know, world leader or world event. I've been watching that guy religiously for like three months. And he he lays out the Chinese demographic collapse perfectly. And it's happening like it, it's now like their China's entire workforce is all Gen Xers and older. Like they are all aging out like immediately and there's mm -hmm. nobody to replace them. And it's, and it, well, we're on TikTok. you know, there, there's every once in a while you'll get a video that comes out of China. Like, and so there's one that I watch. It's, you know, this outdoor huge drop hammer and you know blacksmithing stuff and they're taking these giant pieces of red hot metal and they're you know beating them up everybody i see working in those videos all old guys all of them old guys you don't see any younger folks and to some extent i suppose that's true you know you go into a lot of mechanic shops or welding shops around the country you know anywhere around here you know in between you and me and there might be a couple of younger guys, but three quarters of the folks in there are going to be old guys in their late fifties or early sixties. And they are, they are coasting towards retirement. But here's another, here's another interesting fact about them though, is that not only is it the one child that's killing them, but they will not in their culture, they're not allowed to marry outside the culture. So we will marry Chinese, we will marry African-American, we'll marry Mexican, right? It doesn't matter, but they are not allowed. They're, it's, it's really shunned upon. And so to expand their culture is not that easy because now you have all these men that, how are they supposed to reproduce together? You know, like it, you, you, it's just not gonna happen. And so it is very interesting that it's not just that one thing that's hurting them, but it's also how they are as a culture. And they're, they're pretty tribalistic too. Like we think of China, you know, as this big unified country on the world stage. And it, it doesn't seem like the situation in country it, it is what they want to portray it as, or is what, you know, we see it from you know mainstream media cnn headline news and whatnot there um there's parts of the country that don't necessarily get along and i don't know how much i could i mean i who knows probably already getting flagged down flagged for moderation <laughs> but uh <laughs> it is and it's but it it's just so interesting to listen to ken because he also talks about the fact that manufacturing is already moving back to the united states because they can't keep up. So he says that the manufacturing is going to come back to the US, Canada, and Mexico. That is where all the manufacturing is going to be. And because we are on decent terms with Mexico, right? Like we're, it, it's going to be good for the US. It's going to be good for Canada. And we have, and here's the other, the other fun fact is this is the reason why there's more millennials than boomers is because of immigrants. And he talks about the fact that we should be thankful for these immigrants because boomers did not have enough Gen Xers to be taking care of this country. 
Right. And we needed these immigrants to be coming over as millennials to take care of this country. But the Hispanic population in this country is going to explode because Hispanics have more children than any other nationality. And so they, they're going to just naturally take over because they've come over as immigrants and now they're having, you know, they're good Catholics. They're having five, six, seven kids. They don't have two or three and then they're done. The, the other demographics in this country need to start having more children or we're going to just naturally see that Hispanic population outpace the white population because of that. He is so fascinating. So fascinating. Yeah, the, the ideas of, of what a minority is, I think, are going to be changing yeah. in the next short years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whites will be a minority. Mm-hmm. No, and that it is what it is. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. All right. Wow. We've been at this for a while and I haven't even like, I haven't asked you anything. <laughs> well, I thought you asked me a whole bunch of stuff. I do have a two o'clock, but so we okay. have 20 minutes. Okay. Um, all right. Best advice for starting out. Like I said, I want to like, let, let's, let's think about that millennial that wants to go farm, wants to go ranch that uh, let's throw numbers around. So, you know, Let's just say they've got an extra five hundred dollars a month of cash flow, mm-hmm. and that's a good policy for a millennial. And they want to be, they want to be able to quit their job within two years and go buy five hundred acres out in the country and a house and some chickens and some goats and sheep. Yeah, they're going to need the bank. So <laughs> you're going to need the bank. You might be able to buy your goats. So let's just use numbers. And I have numbers in the books if people want to to get the book. But if you put $5,000 a year into a policy, 75% of that, or 70, let's just say 70% of that is available in 10 days. Okay. So in two years, you've got access to, um, so let's just say 5,000. Let me get my calculator. Uh, Before you do a bunch of numbers, would it like, I guess in this scenario, would it make more sense to say that we have $25,000 in cash saved up? Mm, well, that just begs a new strategy. I mean, but if you can do $5,000 a year, then yeah, we can put 25,000 in year one and get a jump start on the policy because we can structure it that way. If you want to just do $5,000 a year by year two, you'll probably have access to about seven grand. So every year that cash value is going to go up by 3,500, then 4,000, then, or 3,600, 4,000, you know, it just keeps growing every single year. So round numbers, if you put five grand in a year, by year 10, you'll have $50,000. Okay. But if you are sitting on extra cash, I can get that extra in there year one to give it a boost. And now we're building faster. And so it really depends on your job. It really depends on what you're doing. I mean, I I really wish I could give you a concrete answer, Brian, but I have 20 year olds that are doing, I have a 24 year old that might be doing $2,000 a year or $3,000, $4,000 a year. And then I might have a 24 year old that's doing $20,000 a year. Are you an electrician? Are you a plumber? Do you work construction? Do you have a blue collar job? If you have a blue collar job that's paying well and you're frugal, some of these millennials are over the top frugal. Like they're living with roommates. 
they're not buying stuff they don't need because they are educating themselves. And so if we have that extra money, great. And then I have some whom I absolutely love, but then I ask them how much they spent in the bar on shots last week. Because where is all your money? You're making a ton of money as a blue collar worker, but I, you don't have anything in savings. I'm like, I'm not telling you not to drink. Let's just drink at home instead, huh? Let's go buy the bottle of whiskey instead of 10 bottles through 10 shots, you know? Yeah. Or instead of three nights a week at the bar, maybe cut that down to two. Right. And it depends really how quickly they want to get to where they're going. But it really just depends where you're at. We might not, if you want to get to a farm in two or three years, I'm going to tell you to go to the bank, but what can we do in the policy? Maybe we can buy those goats. Maybe we can buy a couple um, cows. Maybe we can buy the chickens through that. Maybe we can, you know, finance something, the fencing or something like that. I will tell you, if I have millennials that are coming and they're starting from scratch, it is going to be a small policy no questions asked, because I want that the majority of your money is going to go to infrastructure. Starting an operation is expensive. The fencing, the equipment, the building, the water, all of that is just super duper expensive. So what I typically do in those situations is I will start small because I want you to be able to access the majority of your cash to build. Then once we've built, we have cash flow that then goes back into the policy. Okay. I dig it. Yeah. It's just, you just have to read the book. Like the best place to start is just to read the book and then schedule an appointment with me. And if What's you the... can, if you can get started, great. If not, Hey, I just made a new friend. All right. What's the book called? Farming without the bank. And you can go to farmingwithoutthebank.com to get it and listen to the podcast farming without the bank. I have two podcasts. So I have Farming Without the Bank and Without the Bank. Okay. Because um, I have the Life Without the Bank book as well. If you want smaller numbers and if you're maybe not on the farm, if you're contributing to a 401k, that's a good book. So you can get one or both. Listen to the podcasts and, you know, just make the appointment. And, but everything you can do, you can do everything from farmingwithoutthebank.com. You can get all the books there. Okay. Social media? Yes. Um, Facebook is Farming Without the Bank. TikTok is MJ Ehrman, I think. M-J-I-R-M-E-N. Um, what did I say? TikTok. Instagram, I think, is MJ Ehrman. YouTube is Mary Jo Ehrman. I'm kind of all mixed up. Okay. Just search my name everywhere and you'll just what, get it. You got your branding nice and tight on the books and the website and, and the podcast. I mean, it's, you got, you got the branding there. I, I'll give you that. Yeah, I'll, well, I'll, I, that that's, that's hats off to my marketing guy, Mike. <laughs> I'll make sure we have all the, all the links, everything you mentioned. We'll get that in the show notes. Uh, the Ken Grumbach, um, make yep. sure that gets in there. Book link to Nelson Nash's book. Um, Anything else? I mean, uh, George Walker says hello. He did send in a question that I just haven't, I just not sure I understand. I don't know how to get to it. So George, we'll just figure that out later. But George wanted me to say hello. I love George. I just had George and Annalise on my podcast um, that released Friday. So they were my latest episode. I'll have to go listen to it. George and Annalise are some of my favorite folks. 
Oh, I love those two. Yeah. And he sends me stuff all the time to listen to. So he, he's like my little education department. <laughs> so you released your episodes on Friday. Yeah. Do you hear from George before noon on Friday? Sometimes it depends. Yeah. I will. I, it, and it, sometimes I don't hear from him, but other times I'll hear just, I'll just randomly hear like he might listen to somebody else's podcast and think that I might need that for information. And so he'll send it over and then I'll listen to it. Well, I know I love my release day crew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I have, you have your absolute dedicated followers, you know, but it's, it is the people that listen all the time are the people that really understand what I'm teaching and why I'm doing it. Cause I'm, you know, it's always educational. I'm not there just to chit chat. I want the information and then to move on. Um, but it really like, we really, here's my thing. I am, my whole passion is to save family farms and we can't save them if we don't do it correctly. And so it has to change. The way we finance has to change. We don't farm like we did a hundred years ago, but we're still financing it like we did a hundred years ago. And so the biggest piece of our operation is our finance. And we just keep doing it the same way we always have. I got an email today from a gentleman that um, somebody shared my TikTok about the banks not releasing collateral for one of my clients. And he messaged me and he said, I just, he said, somebody shared that with me. And I just want you to know what happened to me, that the bank would not release the collateral. He had a $5 million loan, $10 million of land value. And they took it all. They completely took it all and claimed that the other 5 million went to expenses and attorneys. And so it was just a bank, a bad bank situation. And those happen. And so we have to be able to bring this back. We have to be able to estate plan and make sure that that next generation is not saddled with the same burden that we were because grandpa and great grandpa didn't do it. You know, up here, we're only in four or five generations down where you're at. We're talking seven, eight, nine generations, six, seven. Okay. So like, if I go to Georgia, we're, we could be close to eight, nine. Yeah. And so why do we keep making everybody buy it and then wonder why they're committing suicide, why they can't make it. And we blame it on everything except the past generations. And we, we got to do it differently. We just have to look at a different avenue and the older generation, this is tough for them. There's, I mean, I have my boomers, but millennials are really trying to get those Gen Xers and those boomers to see the value. And they maybe don't want to plan because it's just very taboo to talk about dying. Well, it's very taboo to lose your land as well. It, there was a, there was a, what do I say? Gentleman, member of the community, member of a neighboring community um, that it was some time ago, he, he took his own life and it kind of hit at an especially strange time because Tony and I, we'd just been to a field day over at my friend Gail Fuller's um, and the, the title the title that he used for the field day was healing the farm her. Mm. And the whole theme of, of two days was 
let's quit talking about soil health and the land and let's talk about how we're going to heal the farmers and their connection to the land because mm-hmm. if if we can't you know get whole healthy happy people out on the land then it doesn't matter how good of a care we are taking of the land we're still sick inside mm-hmm. and so we're on the way back and we get the news that this this gentleman that was a member of a neighboring community had taken his own life and i'm not not going to claim that i knew him well at all or that i would even have recognized him in a local restaurant like i know his name see him on facebook I, you know you hear about you know this person's doing that this person's doing that so you kind of know who's into what but you never know how much trouble anybody's in well everybody knew that this guy had to sell his truck last year and he quit trucking mm-hmm. nobody really knew that over the last couple of years that he's lost his land, lost his cows, was about ready to lose the last piece of land that he had that the house was sitting on. Mm-hmm. People had drank with him in the bar a week before. And he was, he was reported to be his normal, happy, jolly self. And it wasn't one of those that anybody saw coming. Of course, it never is. No. And we're not, we don't talk about it. You know, and... I guess, you know, here we are like almost two hours in and we're getting ready to talk about mental health. Yay. But it's, it's an elephant in the room and, you know, we can be wealthy as all get out. You can have assets and cash flow and still be sick inside. Mm -hmm. And, But but what percentage of them is that the cause? So here's my thing in, here's my thing with, cause I have a lot of military, um, clients. Thank you for your service, by the way. So I have a lot of military clients that PTSD, not insurable. We have severe PTSD, not insurable. We have a lot of suicide in the military, the, a lot of suicide, but that suicide is due to PTSD, some severe trauma. What is the cause of our suicide in the farming industry? Is it finances? How many people in the farming industry have the illness because it is a mental illness that is truly a trauma versus finance. And I'm not saying one is worse than the other. I'm just saying, can we help with one of them? Can we alleviate the financial strain? Because if 90% of those suicides are financial, can we do something different to help prevent that? I, I, I definitely see your point. I mean, and and finance is definitely, you know, have, having access to a less restrictive system of capital would definitely no, I mean be passing it off. So we're not having to rebuy it. That's right. what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and that would take, you know, the succession planning and inheritance would take, you know, a, a huge load off. But, you know, there's I think there's so many different facets to, quote, the mental health crisis in agriculture and with veterans, because, I, I mean, lucky me i get both sides of that mm-hmm. um you know there's just there's so many things to it and you know i you, you said you have to go and this is like a huge can of worms that we're just going to slam a lid on real fast um there's a lot and you know we, we talked about we started this off by talking about tone and communication and that's how we're going to end because regardless of somebody's in financial straight financial hardship or not 
being able to talk about it. I mean, and being able to come to terms and admit that you have more on your plate than you can handle, whether it's financially, emotionally, or in a personal relationship. I think all of us get to that point from time to time. And it's walking. The conversation needs to be had, right? That, hey, Brian, I'm not doing good financially. Is there, do you know anybody that can help? Do you, because guess what? The farming community would come in and help that guy. But we have to have, just like we were talking about earlier, we have to have those conversations. This guy, can you imagine the guy that emailed me? I said, thank you for emailing me because this is not easy for you to tell your story, but he's on a mission to tell his story. So nobody else does it. Nobody else ends up in that situation. And so if farmers started talking about their stories, how much better would it be? Because you could go in and actually help somebody. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's not the easiest thing in the world for those of us that live and that live out here in the, in the flyover country and oftentimes work alone and spend the bulk of our time alone. It's not always the easiest thing for us to open up and be vulnerable and admit that, you know, we are in trouble. Mm -hmm. I don't talk about it. And I'm a woman. (laughs) I'm not going to talk about it much less a man talking about it. Who's supposed to be a man. Right. And I do think that that's changing. Um, and you know, the mind, the, um, egg state of mind podcast. Yes. Uh, Jason Meadows. Jason. Oh, I couldn't think of his last name. Um, he is doing a fantastic job talking about it, talking about yoga, talking about exercise, like kudos to him for being strong enough to actually bring up those conversations, but it is awesome to be able to talk about that. It is everybody has to play their part i would like to see what the statistics are so that we can go in and say okay this is a relationship issue this is financial this is health this is like can we break those down even further because then we can start helping better in my opinion we can start helping better rather than just blanking it all in and saying, oh, well, you know, it's just how they are. But how do we fix it? It's not, I'm not okay when people say, oh, it's just what it is. No, it's not. How do we, I'm a fixer. How do we fix it? What's causing it? What is the underlying issue? Because we need to stop it. How do we fix it? It's, uh, wow. Like I said, I'm not qualified. That's Jason. We're just opening giant cans of worms in the last 15 minutes of the podcast. (laughs) Maybe we'll have another one. Who knows? We'll we'll just have to come back and do, do an episode too. So, well, it's been great. And, um, I need to get going and I know you do too. So I think, uh, we'll let you guys off and gang have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too.